This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. All right, my guest today is Tim Abel, and I've been following Tim Abel for a long time. He's a former Army Ranger and then followed his next passion in life and moved to Hollywood and became an actor. And I became aware of him on a television show called Soldier of Fortune, which was a Jerry Bruckheimer production. And he played a sniper, Marine sniper, Benny Ray Riddle. And he now has more than 100 television and film credits and did a 10-year run as the host and producer of Grateful Nation on the Outdoor Channel, taking veterans uh, out on hunts and helping them transition from military service. So I had a great time talking to him. He also did something that is just so cool, and it is something called Father's and Sons, a terminalist story. And he played a Navy SEAL in this 10-minute short film, which you can find on my website, officialjackcar.com. You can scroll to January and some behind the scenes from the filming of that short film are, uh, are on the website. And most everyone involved in the production was a veteran. And now it has won numerous awards and I uh, could not be more thrilled that my story inspired this short film. So, Without further ado, a true Renaissance man, Tim Abel. Your first, uh, I guess, foray into this space was was it nineteen ninety? Is that when you uh, you did you had your first uh, acting role? Is that when that happened? Well, kinda, yeah. I guess well, I, I moved to Los Angeles in nineteen ninety, okay. and um, I'd been doing a lot of theater. I went to the University of Maryland after after the military, and that's where I started. I got into theater. So okay. for me. At the time, my my then wife, uh, Sian, she had, she gave me an ultimatum because she wanted to start a family and all that sort of thing. She says, "Listen, I know you want to be an actor. Where do where do you have to be to do that?" And so um, I said, "Well, Los Angeles or New York." And I'd been doing plays in Los Angeles and uh, Washington D.C. And I was at the uh, studying Shakespeare at the Shakespeare Theater at the Folger and uh, Arena Stage, and you know I was doing that, but it was you know. Doing okay, but I said, you know, film and TV is kind of the thing I really want. I love, I love what I do, but I go, I guess Los Angeles or New York. So she goes, make a choice. I said, <laughs> LA. I says, at least if I'm not working, it's a nice place to be, right? And so uh, we ended up packing up, and she says, okay, I'm going to save every penny we have. I was bartending at the time, and she took every penny, and then the money I made from acting, she took everything I got, put it into a fund, and at the end of the year. I don't know, we had like $15,000 to move out to LA. And so we moved out the day after Christmas, we drove out to LA uh, and got here in, in 1990. And uh, that was kind of it, man. But uh, yeah, it was, you know, you, you, as an actor, it's like those lean times and you have to really love what you do. And that's part of the process and that I love. I don't know, it's that roller coaster ups and downs and ups and downs. And every day is like, you know, you get a job, it's like winning the lottery. You know, I saw... Uh, Mikey Broderick is uh, is also he's so stoked and excited about this new gig he's got. And yeah. uh, I just, you know, it's it's that I can't explain it, Jack. It's it's because um, most people, it would drive them nuts and they can't do it. You know, it's because it's it's so uncertain. Yeah. You got to love the journey, I think, really. I mean, you really have to be about the journey. If you're just looking at that destination and all you know about acting is what you see, you know, yeah. uh, at the Academy Awards, that's your, your only, uh, kind of like with writing, everybody thinks, you know, JK Rowling, or you think it's, uh, you know, the 50 shades of gray, or you think it's, you know, a Clancy novel or something like that. Like those are the outliers yeah. out there that, that, and very few people, you know, come out of the gate like that. But most people's experience or exposure is that just because that's what they see on the New York times list at the number one spot, that sort of right. thing. So I think acting is the same way. Like you have to love the craft love that journey because uh, otherwise oh man because you're, you're gonna take some hits you're gonna Actually, get knocked down for sure yeah you talked on one of your uh, previous podcasts about uh, joseph campbell you know the hero's yeah. journey and mm-hmm. i know michael Roderick used that analogy with fathers and sons the reason he created fathers and sons based on you know your characters and when i first came to la i mean i love i I used to read everything. So, and I bought Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, the, you know, the, uh, uh, all of his writings about that 
hero and your and your the protagonist that has to go on that journey to go away yeah. to suffer all the slings and arrows of what life throws at you, and then come back the hero, the man, the person that has can now enlighten everybody and help everybody yeah. on their on their own journeys. And um, it's kind of I don't know. It's life is like that. I always look at life as you know it's it's not promised to anyone, especially guys like you and all these all of our uh, military brethren that are all fighting wars every day on a daily basis. And, you know, life is not promised. And even now, you know, people drop dead from heart attacks or strokes or whatever happens, gets hit by a car, you know, whatever happens. And it's life seems too precious of a thing to not follow what is in your heart, in your own dreams. So, you know, it's like looking at you and knowing that you want to be a writer while you're still serving when you got out and you focused yourself and that's what you did. And I didn't know I wanted to be an actor. I mean, it was I was in college to go back in. I was going to go back in. I was in the ROTC program, at University of Maryland. Fell into the acting thing. For me, it was like, wow, this is kind of interesting. This is a, huh. So I started doing more and more plays, got into the, you know, uh, the black box theater. And so for me, it was just like, that was like a, an eye-opening thing just popped because I was such a shy, or I should say introverted individual that, being in the theater and then playing characters that were so unlike myself. That was liberating. Yeah. You know, I played a serial killer in a movie and I remember six months of just researching serial killers, getting into that wow. mindset and it was enlightening. It was, it was disturbing, but it was enlightening. Yeah. And it was like, so for me, that was still is that aspect of playing a character or, or something that I, I'm not familiar with. And then having to, absorb all of this material, read books, watch movies, listen to interviews, uh, pull up old archival information to see what this person, how they might've been. What that yeah. The research is fascinating so, for, for all of that. You know, same thing with a novel. You can, you have to research all this stuff, go down these different rabbit holes and you discover things you want to incorporate that you never even thought that they're not definitely not in your outline and you never thought would incorporate, but add so much flavor to the story. And that's that part of that journey, you know? And uh, yeah, the I talk about Joseph Campbell's uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces quite yeah. a bit because I discovered him in 1988 through a series of interviews he did with Bill Moyers on PBS yeah. called The Power of Myth. And then they were like a three-part uh, book series that that came out after that. Um, but I, you know, I remember thinking at the, at the time that, hey, we're all on this journey and we're all going to emerge transformed along the way if we're learning. And that was the whole point of the hero's journey and all these different cultures um, that never had any sort of connection with one another, but they had these similar mythologies because they were teaching right. a lesson. And, uh, and we're all on that. We're all our own protagonist in our own story. So, uh, and you get to choose how you're going to, uh, you know, you get to listen to that calling. Like you listened for acting. I listened for military and for, and for writing, but uh, a lot of people don't listen to that call. And I think that really, you know, I don't know why that is, but, uh, I think they're discouraged along the way. A lot of the time, like if you told someone you want to be an actor and you want to go to Hollywood, they're like, yeah, sure. Kid, you know, good luck. You know, yeah. life's going to knock you down. And that's true. It's probably going to knock you down. But uh, at the same point, you could listen to that, even if it's just a subliminal look that someone gives you. And you can put that in there like, oh, huh. and enough of those add up. And I think people just, you know, don't listen to that that call. But you you did. And that is amazing. And I want to ask you, like when like, you first, you heard the call for acting later on, but what about for military service? So for those that, uh, that don't know, you were in the 75th Ranger Regiment. Um, and you, uh, growing up, did you, were you influenced by popular culture that way? Or was there a history, well, a family history or what, what, what led you into, uh, into the military? Some of all of that, uh, family history, obviously with me, because my, uh, and some of this, I didn't find out until later in life, but my grandfather, uh, Pat, we always called him Pappy Abel. He was, uh, he joined the, the army. He was a, became a, it was a farrier in World War One. Went to went to France, and he would tell us stories about being being in the army and fighting the Germans in uh, in World War One. He joined when he was sixteen, right about his wow. age, and uh, would tell us stories. And he had books like uh, the book from his from his regiment, and we used to love looking at the pictures. And he would tell us stories about that experience of being a doughboy, and and that kind of got really piqued my interest about him and seeing some of the old pictures that he had of himself in his old doughboy uniform and whatnot in, in, in France. And then my uncle, uh, who was actually my dad's second cousin, Bruce King, he, uh, he became like, he was like my, my surrogate uncle that never had a son and wanted a hunting partner. So uh, I came from a broken family. My mom and dad broke up when I was about seven. 
Uh, we spent a lot of time f- fishing with my dad on the Chesapeake Bay, crabbing, that sort of thing. But I kind of ended up segueing into hunting and shooting a lot more because my uncle and Bruce would always pick me up, take me on the weekends and take me shooting, teach, teach me about the woods, being a good woodsman, um, you know, setting up uh, uh, deer blinds and stands and woods and, and taught me all of these skills, you know, going back and how, how important it was to be quiet when you're going back to your deer stand. And I was just a little, a little tight and he would take me back there and I didn't get to shoot for, for many, many seasons and just set me in a stand and taught me how to be quiet. And, but he was a Marine. He was a Marine over in, uh, in, in Korea and during the Korea conflict. And he would tell me stories about what that was like and worrying about being invaded by the Chinese and those stories. I was just fascinated listening to him telling me these stories and then learning more about my history, my great, great grandfather, one fought on the northern side, one fought on the southern side. And having that was just uh, many was fascinated with, with the Civil War and about what that was like. And father fighting against son, cousins against cousins. And, and so that to me, I mean, I, be, I became addicted to my little green army men, right? My little yeah. plastic guys. I had these big oh, masks yeah. that were set up and they had like landscapes on them. And I would come up, my brother who wasn't into it all. And he was, he, he was the one to come in there and I have it intricately set up and he'd come in there and kick everything over and I'd, I'd freak <laughs> out, you know, but that was my thing. And I used to just sit out there and build these little dugouts and forts and kind of remind me when I went to ranger school, because we had to build these terrain models of, of what you're going, what your mission was, where you're going. And here's my terrain model. Here's what our objective is. Here's where we are. Here's our ORP and blah, blah, blah. And so I was pretty good at it because I used to do it as a kid. all the time. <laughs> And in elementary school, Sixth grade, I remember we um, had to start doing bio, uh, writing book reports. And so I kind of gravitated to, they had this one section with all these military generals, U.S. military generals, Ulysses Grant, uh, Eisenhower. And I started reading, the, and they were, they were short reads for elementary school minds, but I read through the entire set. I was just like hungry for more. And so I started reading more and more military biographies. And that really kind of made me go, you know, I, I knew it probably at 12 years old, I said, I'm going to join the army. I'm going to join the army. And, and then when I read the green berets by Robin Moore, I go, I'm going to be a special forces soldier. That's what I want to do. Then I saw the movie and I go, yeah, that's it, man. I want to be a green beret. And um, when I tried to enlist, well, when I did enlist on the uh, delayed entry program in high school, that was uh, the recruiter. I remember he did everything he did to talk me out of doing that. Why do you want to do that? Why don't you get an education? Why don't you go computers or truck driver, or aviation mechanic? And I went, sir, I want to I want to do something in the Army that I can only do in the Army. And I feel it's an imperative upon me because my grandfather fought for our family. His grandfather and his great-grandfather, I go, I have to be that person because my brother's not joining the military. My dad didn't, didn't serve in the military. I have to be that one to secure our place in this country. And I, and I was kind of had this little patriotic mind and I, you know, I had to serve to, you know, because it was my duty. And I always say that that's the, one of those things, you know, kids, they know if they want to serve or not. It's most, most, most kids know. Uh, it's my brother thought I was an idiot. Oh, you're stupid. Why are you going to join the army? Why are you going to go off and do something stupid like that? You're going to get yourself killed. And I was like, I, I just feel like I have to Jay. I just, this is my duty. I have to go serve our country. And he couldn't understand it. He just, he just thought I was the biggest idiot for doing that. But you know, my dad was proud of it. My dad was like, he signed for me cause I was still 17. And, uh, you know, it was one of the, I still say the best decision I ever made in my life was joining the army. And then I couldn't get a special forces contract, but I did get a ranger contract. And that's how I ended up with, uh, the uh, second ranger battalion at Fort Lewis. Nice at Fort Lewis. Yeah. So you went to Fort Benning for, for uh, boot camp, and then ranger school right after that. Or did you have to go to jump school Not in between Fort, or how did that work? Fort Dix, Fort okay. Dix, which, um, was, uh, uh, I remember the, uh, drill instructors would always say Fort Dix, the asshole of the world. You know? <laughs> but we were there and it was the coldest, it was the coldest winter in many, many years. It was 1976. And wow. we basically, most of, most of our training was indoors until we had some break in the weather and we could actually go out to the rifle range and do conduct some, some, uh, uh, range time. But it was all, we're, we're like in freaking full on Arctic gear. And it's like, we're out there, like, you know, the state puff, you know, snowman type thing. And, and, but it was, it was, um, it was interesting because it was a, a transitional time for so many people. 
Yeah, right after Vietnam. Were all your drill yeah, instructors, uh, they have Vietnam experience? Majority, they were all Vietnam uh, veterans. And so we had that experience coming from them. And moving forward through that, the basic training was, you know, it was, I mean, I was gung-ho on two of my other buddies, uh, Ron Britton, who went on to serve in SF uh, for, you know, 30 plus years, and uh, Wayne DeGroat. We all came from the same area, rival high school, we became fast friends. And so we kept, we were like motivation, motivation, motivation to each other. So we're there doing con, you know, push-up contests, pull-up contests, and we're freaking out all the people. Like, oh, you guys are freaking weird, man. And we, 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 we did something. We ended up, we got in trouble. We shaved our heads with our razors to make our heads like slick bald, not wow. just a crew cut. And our drill yeah. instructor goes, what in the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> we're like, we're just excited and we're motivated. Drill there we go. Goes, God damn it. You're not supposed to be individuals. You are part of a team. You're not supposed to look like that. And so, but, anyway, but then privately, come go, listen, I appreciate your guys' enthusiasm. I know you guys are all going to the Ranger Battalion, but you got to work as a team here and you can't be shaving your damn heads. Okay. <laughs> yes, drill instructor. All right. And then we, we went from Fort Dix to AIT, Advanced Infantry Training at uh, Fort Benning. From that to, um, to an airborne school and then hometown recruiter. We all got chosen for hometown recruiter, got to go back for a month, you know, thinking we're really cool with our, with our black berets on and our, you know, our khakis and, you know, little did we know we're wearing our berets all kind of fucked up. Like, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> I see pictures. I go, Oh man, we were like, you know, we sure didn't know how to wear those berets. <laughs> and um, then we went to, uh, then we went to battalion and we went through uh, the, at the time it was called RIP. Ranger mm-hmm. indoctrination program. Yep. And it was a very small class. It was about probably 12, 14 of us. And three of us, three of us, four of us, I should say, four of us basically ended up graduating out of the rip and being assigned to our to our companies. But and I say to this day, I go, Rip was in a lot of ways harder than Ranger score, even pre-Ranger and those because I mean it was it was ball busting and they really were, they, they, they would never say you can't be here. You had to be the one to go, I'm done. I can't, I, I don't want to do this, you know, get the back of the truck and, you know, uh, you know, you're out of here. And it was like, my mindset was, I'll never quit. They'll never break me. I'm not, I, I'll die here. And I remember having bleeding feet on that 12 mile final road March. And it was two of us that finished that. And it was just like sucking it up and driving on and not quitting. And, and it was, that became, Something that, you know, it was, you see that within a lot of special operations type units in the training. It's what's the key? Don't quit. Just keep moving forward. You know, get your ass up, suck it up, move on, motivate the others. But if you can't, you know what? You just got to keep driving on. Yeah. And uh, that's what I learned. You know, that was the one thing I learned. I took away from that. That was one of the key things was, you know what? Everyone's, everyone's in a bad place. Everyone's sucking right now. Everybody's hurting. You know, you're not special, you know, and when they're out there going, Ranger, we got some hot donuts and coffee here for you. If you want to get in the back of the truck. And I oh, just yeah. like, we do the same thing in SEAL training. Yeah. Negative Sergeant. Negative. <laughs> Move out. Negative Sergeant Airborne. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I try to instill that, you know, into, you know, my, uh, I think about this is that my, my uh, stepson, Max, who, who became an Eagle Scout, I was like the one who went on all those camping trips and hiking and backpack trips to Philmont and all the, you know, we're at, we're out there. And for me, it was just such a joy to be out there teaching them land navigation and all those things. And I remember being out there in the pouring rain, lightning, and it's sucking. And I remember telling this group of like 14 and 15 year old boys that are becoming men and they're out there. It's cold. It's sky where I'm wet. I'm soaking wet. And I remember giving that, that, that briefing. Come here, boys. We're all, I said, we're all sitting here. We're all soaking wet. We're all tired. We're all hungry. Our feet are hurting and we want to get to our destination so we can set up, set up our tents, get dry, have some food. I go, but we're all, we're all in the same boat. We all feel the same way. Right now is something you need to learn is embrace the suck, embrace the suck. And let's just keep driving on. Cause if we sit here and whine and cry about it, it's just going to make it more miserable. That's it. And Sometimes all like, you can control is your attitude. And that was the one thing that they took away. Even to this day, I'll still see some of the boys and I go, Mr. Abel, embrace the suck. Yes. Nice. 
<laughs> and that was the one thing they took away from it was their land nav that I taught them and uh, and embracing the suck. So, you yeah. know, I was like, I have no idea where most of those boys are today. But, uh, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, it's one of those things that you think if you can just give them a little bit of what you've learned in life that they take that with them. Oh, yeah, they certainly will. I remember I have experiences like that that I, I remember to this day uh, very vividly. Um, and actually I had somebody over here the other day cause I'm signing book plates for this next novel, the devil's hand coming out. And I have all these books that need to go out and get packaged and printing labels and all this stuff. Uh, people think that publisher like does all that stuff for you. Well, this other room, if I was to like <laughs> hand the camera around here, chaos. Um, so a kid came over to help and, uh, he's, uh, he's going into the army and he has a, uh, an SF type contract. And so we were talking about that and I was, I said, uh, Hey, you know, training, what you have to do is show up at the right place at the right time with the right gear and not quit. Like there, there you go. Like get through it and then, uh, get to your team and then, uh, then you can go earn your graduate degree. But, uh, yeah, some of those, uh, same thing in buzz, just like you, what we're talking about right there, you get, you know, just don't quit, but you got to show up at the right time at the right place with the right gear, uh, or you're going to make it, <laughs> you're going to make it a lot more painful for yourself and the rest of your team. And I'll tell you, Jack, it's one of those things too, even to this day, like when I was out with the boys, for the Boy Scouts and we're up in Philmont doing our hikes. And it's when it gets really dark in terms of, you know, everyone's mood and everyone's getting tired. Even on, even on a film set, I'll say on a film set most recently, it's, it's a night shoot and it's everyone's tired and everyone's like, ah, and I'm still thinking how lucky I am to be working on this movie and to be out here filming. And, and, every, and I also, I become, inside it kind of lights up and I become like this beacon people how the hell are you not tired and wet and cold I go I am but I am so happy to be here I'm so happy to be working and I can't wait to start filming this next scene and you know what I just to me I'm living the dream amazing yeah but aren't you tired and cold of course I am I go but hey only thing I control is this that's right and I am happy to be here you know so I go you know what what's whining gonna do about it not a thing and so next thing you know, it starts to change other people's attitudes. That's hey, right. It affects everybody okay. around you. No doubt you about know, it. And, and then you start to, you realize that your, your attitude and your demeanor affects everybody. And on film sets, I, I equate film sets very much like uh, the military, because if you have a director who's a miserable fuck, who, who, who is not a nice person who yells and screams, it affects the entire crew and how the production moves forward and how people act and react to each other. Oh yeah. Whereas if you have a, a director that knows what he wants is he doesn't yell, doesn't scream, doesn't demean. And there's that thing of, you know, you praise in public and you reprimand in private. And a lot of times that, that people don't do that. You know, they love to, you always hear the stories of the producers who like to reprimand people in public. And it's, it's one of those things where I don't tolerate it. You know what? I, I don't tolerate it. I, I push back on that. I can't, I can't say I've had that a lot, but when I have, it's like, there's no, there's no reason to be speaking to me that way right now, sir. You know, I'm here to do the best job I can. I'm sorry that you didn't care for that take I did or what I did, but you know what? We can, you know, we can do it one more time. And, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of stressed right now. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. That, my only experience with that is last week on the, uh, on the set of the terminal list. And of course we have Antoine Fuqua directing and, uh, and Chris Pratt starring. And those guys are just such incredible human beings that, that filtered down. So many people came up to me to tell me that they've been on so many film sets over the years. And we had 350 per people working on the, the Paramount lot. And so many of them came up and wanted to tell me, well, first they wanted to say like, Hey, you know, my, my husband or my, my sister, big fan, we signed a book. I get a picture. Or, hey, can I, can you sign a book to my son? He's going to the Marine Corps, like that sort of thing, which was amazing. Uh, I'd be standing next to Chris and people would come up and say, uh, can I get a picture? I'm like, yeah, let me take one for you. And like, no, with you. Okay. I'm like, okay. Hey, Chris, you want to take this <laughs> picture real quick? Uh, but Antoine, I mean that it does, it comes from that top down and people see him. It's super late at night. They see Chris, they see that smile on his face. Everybody's happy to be working. And people yeah. came up and said this, this is, we've looked in a lot of sets and we haven't felt this before. And we also had like 10, 12 team guys there. So SEAL buddies of mine on set, either as technical advisors, as actors, um, or, you know, whatever it's stuntmen, uh, and we're all there together. It's like a reunion. So it was a, such a cool fan. It felt like a family, even though it was 350 people there, it felt like we were one big family, one big team. And it was, and COVID probably played into that too, because, you know, there's been a lot of uncertainty around that, around working in Hollywood. And here we are with 300 people on set with all these COVID protocols in place, but we're there, we're getting it done. It's super late, but everybody was so happy to be working and then to have Antoine up there and have Chris up there was just, it was really cool to see that. And I've never experienced that before. Well, I have to say, I mean, you should be 
super proud. And I know you, I know you are because you, I mean, you look at your book that you wrote. Awesome. But now being made into a series, but all of those people, all of those fellows that you know on that set that you're now gainfully employing and all working together. I mean, it's you provided that for them through your efforts of writing. I, I saw your, um, your post, you had a post about uh, the back of your, your seat covers about the, on the, on the, on the seat. Right. So I, I had a find out here. This was like when I get, oh, so yes, that is awesome. Yes. This was like, this was like, to me, I have mine in my backpack on, right outside that yeah. door, but that is so awesome. When, when I came on set and we saw that, and for me, it was my first time on a, on a TV show as a series regular. And for me, it was just, this was like, my mind was blown. I'm just like, how fortunate and lucky am I to be doing this? And you go back to when you were asking about, about being an actor, about it, when I knew all these things, it's like coming to LA, being, having been a, in the military, really seemed to mean nothing for, for the longest period of time, which, I, which a lot of military projects were filming TV shows or uh, uh, movies, and they could give two craps about, you know, oh, you okay, yeah, so what, you were, you were in, uh, a ranger, so what, you're in the army, uh, okay, that's good. You know, actors act, and he can act like he's in the army, or he can have training, you know, and, and you, you hear about this, the little schools that Dale Dye will do to help tune up everybody to make them feel like they're a team, and like they're have some some semblance of military camaraderie. And it wasn't until the Soldier of Fortune series that uh, that became, that changed because Bruckheimer was a huge, still is a huge advocate of our veterans and our military. And I remember when I auditioned for that and I got to meet him and hear the uh, kind of the report about me getting the show. And it was about, he was, you being a ranger was a huge part of him being excited about you being part of the show. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. It just made me feel good. It made me feel, you know, yeah. it's like, well, somebody appreciates the fact of what you've gone through. And the same thing with you now with your show, because of what you've gone through and all the other actors, your, your seal pals that are working on the show, they get to bring that experience to the character. And I, I remember, you know, when you do the show, Harry Humphreys was our tech advisor. A Vietnam era seal. Yeah. He and Keith Willard. Keith Willard was one of our stunt coordinators, stunt guys on our show. Yeah. And um, these guys came on and we get all of our gear. They had all this Black Hawk gear, which was created by a, a seal. Yeah. And so we had all this brand new gear. I remember I still had all my Ranger gear packed away. So we get our gear, and you know how when you're in the military, you're, you your gear is very special to you. It's yeah. you know you, you know, it's not just you don't just get new stuff and put it on. You have to. Tune it up, put stuff on, wrap some tape here. You got knives right. over here. And so I remember we showed up like first day and I had my stuff. I had my my gear all squared away and I had some of my old Ranger gear kind of incorporated into it. I remember all the guys come out looking like brand new spade right. out of a, a JC Penny catalog for uh -huh. gear. And they're all there. Yeah, man. All of a sudden they look at me, they go, Hey, well, how come your stuff looks so damn cool? We look like <laughs> Well, I go, well, here, you got this. and You shouldn't do that and take that nice. off. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of helped square them away. But That's it was awesome. like, you know, I, I got to put that to use. And, I, I you know, it's like I still do. I still get to use that 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 knowledge to, you know, what, with what I'm doing. So and that's what I love yeah. about acting, too, is I get to incorporate that. Even playing a serial killer, I get to. <laughs> I bring it. I, I remember I, they were like, going, well, what? The boy, this Jim Beckett guy, what kind of stuff in the book? He has all these things. We don't. Hmm, we got to go find this. I go. Well, I got a, I got a bunch of stuff. And they're like, what do you have? I, I have stuff like, you know, this was like one of my, I love, like you do, like you love sharp things. Like I go, <laughs> well, I have like stuff like this, like this, nice. ever, no claw. And I got, that's this pretty that. sweet right there. Go, oh, well, can we use it? I go, of course you can. Yeah. This, this is all part of the character. And next thing they go, what do you got all this stuff for? I go, man, ever since I was a kid, I love knives. I love sharp things. I love little things that, you know, neck knives, all the stuff. And uh, I yeah. have, have tons of that stuff so it became <laughs> like great. you know yeah. utilizing all that stuff for, for what we do it's like uh, why don't you have it well, yeah my, my question back to you why don't you have it yeah that's why exactly. for people that don't and people that don't know it's uh so soldier of fortune ran for for two seasons it was jerry bruckheimer's first time doing something uh you know outside of a movie it was for for, yeah. for tv and you played benny benny ray riddle marine corps sniper and i loved that show that was awesome so it came it came out in 97 or 98 what, what uh, we started. Filming, we came at ninety-seven. We started filming. Uh, like right now, it's like almost tax day in April. Uh, we started filming 
1997, April 15th was our wow. first day of filming. And we filmed and then the show started airing uh, that September. Okay. And then it ran, it ran for two seasons. And the funny thing is, it still, it still airs over in Europe, still runs in Europe. Nice. Like, loop. It just runs continually over there. So it's like, I still get fan mail from folks over there, which is pretty cool. That is Pretty awesome. Cool. I, I want to watch them all again um, because we've gotten to know each other over the last few months. And, uh, you know, I've always been a, been a fan. I found out about you during that show because I was reading Soldier of Fortune magazine, of course. And I saw the show's coming out with the same name. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, what is this? And who's this guy? Like, who's this ranger guy they're talking about here? What's this sniper guy, Benny Ray Riddle? This looked pretty cool. And uh, it was a great show. I mean, it was like a mini movie. It was like the first oh, time what? that they, you know, guys that had focused on doing big, huge budget action films did like a bunch of mini ones for a series. And it was, yeah. it was like groundbreaking at the time. Um, and it, you know, I wish it stayed, it stayed on because I thought it was fantastic, but I was just getting out of buds at the time was why it really resonates is because I got, I, I, um, uh, graduated buds in October of 97. So, uh, that show was just, just coming out. And so for my, my first time being a new guy in a platoon and then moving into that second year, I was watching, watching the show and, uh, it was a big fan. So, uh, so that, that, that was, that was a great one. So that was, uh, that was so fun to see you doing that and being able to incorporate some actual tactics and gear and, and all the rest of it in that show. You, that was, it was, it. it was a great experience. I mean, they, Bruckheimer wanted the show to be as tactically uh, uh, exact as possible. So he brought yeah. Harry on. Harry would go all the scripts. He'd go, no, 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 no. Put this down. We, this is how we would do this. And it's funny because the first season is, is a lot different than the second season. The first season was much darker. and But our show, because it was syndicated, uh, it ran at different market times. So some areas it was 10 o'clock. In, in the evening, like on a Thursday, some places like Chicago, I believe it came on like at five or six in the app in the evening, early evening. And our show started off being very, I mean, I, you know, I was, I would throw things in like someone who just got shot. I'd walk by, you know, we have these uh, uh, suppressed weapons or something. I go by and pop them again or something in the head. And the director go, Whoa, why did you have to do that? I go, well, sir, you want this to be as realistic as possible. But yeah, but he's already down. I go, just making sure. Yeah, a lot of people <laughs> have been killed by people they thought were already dead. That's that's no doubt about that's what that. Making sure, you know. And so then the show became, uh, it got, what's the word? Uh, it was so real in a lot of ways and violent for the time because now yeah. nowadays it's nothing. But people, they, they said, we have to kind of tone it back. So that's when they kind of started making it so that we weren't just, you know, slitting throats and headshots. It became... Well, we're going to dart them. We're going to hit them with the tranquilizer. We're going to yeah. gas them. I'll knock them out. So they tried to start taming the show down a little bit. Yeah. Which we're all going, well, that's kind of bullshit, isn't it? You know? <laughs> but, you know, we still try to keep it as real as possible. And it's funny because at the same the same year, I believe it was 97, 98, I think it was, Saving Private Ryan came out. And um, I swore that Barry Pepper used to watch the show. And I swore, I said, he stole my, he's, he stole Benny Ray Riddle. And now he's Benny Ray Riddle in that damn uh, saving private <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. You may be right. <laughs> you may be right. Oh, amazing. And people don't know. So you are quite the Renaissance man. So you've been, so you've been army ranger and you're, you're studying Shakespeare. You're going to Hollywood. You've been there for 30, 30 years now. Can you believe that? <laughs> and Dude, the time in the blink of an eye, man. Amazing. Amazing. And we got reconnected because you uh, did a short film with Michael Broderick called Fathers and Sons that yep. uh, was inspired by my novel, The Terminal List. And it explains where, uh, and, it, and actually I, I love it because I didn't know where uh, James Reese, my protagonist, where his father got the Darcy Eccles rifle, because they're pretty pricey, uh, where he got that to give to his son. And I never really explored you know, that at all. I just knew that the father gave it to his son. Um, yep. And then he uses it in the in the novel in the opening uh, in the prologue, but uh, but you guys thought about that and brought in a bunch of veterans from uh, uh, is it is it veterans in entertainment? Um, so director, writer, as many people as possible working on this ten minute short film, and it's so fantastic because it's it was such a shock in that uh, I didn't know it was coming, and all of a sudden Michael Broderick emails this thing to me and says, "Hope you like it." And I watched it and I was just so blown away. You crushed it. So did Michael. Everybody involved just brought their A game. And now it's winning awards at all these film festivals. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah. people want to see it, they can go to my, my website. It's officialjackcar.com. And it's um, you can scroll down to January and there's a blog article that talks about some behind the scenes there and you can watch the whole yeah. film. But my, yeah, it's my, won a bunch of, uh, bunch of awards and I rightly so. Yeah. He just won a Best Actor Award for it as well. And I, you, you say we, you know, we all came with our A game. We did. And I have to say, I have to give all, all praise to, uh, to, to, to Broderick because Michael, as he said before, he said, you know, I mean, it was during the COVID time. We're not doing anything. He goes, and I had to do, I felt like I had to do something, right? And so he'd been so inspired by the terminal list, by your, in your book, Savage Son and, and, and whatnot, in that he, he said, you know, I just, I created that. He wrote, he, wrote, he wrote the first script. And then he got Vernon Mortensen, who was a SWIC guy, yeah. uh, who's, now, who's now a writer down in San Diego. He then created his script, which kind of fine-tuned what Mike would have written and created a bit more dy dy dynamicism to it. And it became what it is. But Michael, it was Michael's baby from the beginning. Michael produced it. Michael got a, got the uh, locations. He brought everybody together. Ryan Curtis, who was our director, brought him in. Tyne Strickland, the uh, actress who was from his so acting great. class. I mean, brought everyone together. And I told Michael, I said, you know, brother, it's just, this year has been a you know, real, you know, not much because of COVID. Everything's been locked down. So December 1st for me was just, the most wonderful thing to get to work and then to show up and go, wow, this is like, I feel like I'm working on an HBO production here. It's just, I mean, it was, uh, you know, no expense was spared, man. We, 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 we had a great day. We filmed all day. We, we got to create our, our, our characters. And, uh, you know, Michael was, Michael had his, his boundaries got pushed as an actor, Ryan Curtis, really helped him to hone in and to create that feeling of, you know, as James Reese's dad to what it was like for him now to see his son go off to war and possibly yeah. get killed. Yeah. And I just, I still, I still, I mean, to me, it's just it's such a special project yeah. and thank you to you because I mean, oh. you were the, the, uh, uh, the catalyst for it and because of your character. So, well, no, I appreciate it's a great, that. It's great homage. It's a great, oh. great homage to you. Oh, well, thank you guys. And it's, uh, yeah, I got so much, so many emails and text messages and direct messages from people that said they saw it, but more importantly, their father saw it and then they forwarded it to their dad and then their dad got in touch with them. And there was like tears and there was all these emotions and I got so many of those and I've never had, uh, I've never posted anything where I got that kind of a response, that kind of an emotional response because it's a special project. It wasn't just, you know, you guys going into a room and loading magazines and putting on gear and then walking out the door and then calling it a day. It was very thoughtful and uh, very powerful on a, on a host of different levels. So, uh, so thank you for that. It was absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Now, that, that was, and that was, again, that was to see how many people affected and touched for, for being a 10 minute short film. That's yeah. that to me, that's the litmus test. You know what? Uh, Michael Broderick did an outstanding job pulling everyone together. Ryan Curtis did an awesome job directing. And then you have, and he brought in all the crew. And yeah, as you said, so many of them were our veterans and yeah. uh, from VME and then Vernon Mortensen, you know, coming on board to, to write the little script. So, I mean, it's like, you know, it was, it was a great honor to be a part of that and to be asked to be a part of that. Yeah, no, that was, that was incredible. And, uh, and what else, so what do you have going on these days? What's next on, uh, what's next on your, your agenda? I know you've done a ton of work since you got to Hollywood with veterans and veteran organizations and TV shows that are focused on helping veterans, uh, reintegrate into society, grateful nation. Um, so you've done a, a lot of work on that front. Um, so, so I guess of all those projects that you've done, what's been the most impactful both to you and to the, the veterans that you've assisted? Well, you know, I mean, I work with organizations, American soldier network, Annie Nelson, she does a lot of good work. Uh, Carl Munger and Gallantfee, which Michael Broderick and I both were part of on the board and, you know, helps our transitioning veterans of all from, from all services, all branches to transition back into being civilians and to help you know, with veteran suicide and, and financial assistance and school and uh, just across the board and uh, just do, they do great work. And um, I am very proud of, we did uh, 10 seasons of Grateful Nation. Grateful Nation was a show I used to do. A, I did a series just before that called The Federal Experience. And uh, they were, uh, I, it became me as, a, me as an actor. And because they couldn't find, they couldn't find an actor that, that liked to hunt or would say he liked to hunt in LA. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. So they, he tapped me into it. And I, and for two seasons, all I did was I got to travel around the world hunting and, and talking about 
my love of hunting and what it was like, you know, and so going to Africa and, and uh, uh, Alaska and, and Argentina, all these places. And then, you know, talking about that experience. And then we transitioned into Grateful Nation where I would then take, I would host a show taking veterans uh, who've been in a combat situation in their life and how it changed their life. Some loss of limbs or eyesight or, you know, whatever, how it, however it affected them. And, um, tell their story. Uh, yeah. uh, Navy SEALs. We took, uh, we went to Africa with uh, Mike Day. Who oh, yeah. The SEAL that got shot 27 times. Yeah. Dan Knossin, uh, the wow. um, LT who lost both legs. Yeah. Um, and we got to tell their story in Africa. We did three episodes actually because there was so much to tell. Amazing. And, but for me, yeah, that, that doing that show for 10 seasons was, was wonderful because hearing what they've gone through and how their life has changed. It, it wasn't, they were, they became inspirations to our viewers yeah. and to other veterans who would watch the show going, you know what? I'm sitting here in a wheelchair and Dan Knossin's out there running marathons with, with two prosthetic legs. I got to get out of my chair. Why am yeah. I, why am I, why am I, why am I feeling sorry for myself? You know, just because I lost legs. Here's a guy who, who in between takes like the morning and the evening, he'd be out there running five miles on his prosthetic legs because he's tuning up to run in a marathon when he got back to the, to, to Washington, DC. And they go, that guy, that guy, that's what Mike Dave goes, Tim, I brought him along because he inspires me. Yeah. He goes, I'm not out there joining him for a run, but he goes, that guy, he's just, he's just, that's him. That's who he is. And so during that show, we, each veteran, they all had their own story, their own uh, journeys that they would go through. And, for me, so I was very proud of that show. Still, I'm very proud yeah, of that show. Yeah, that's amazing. I yeah. remember watching it too, and and uh, you know, seeing you because I had we had that connection from even though you didn't know it from Soldier of Fortune, and then I saw you doing that show, and I you know knew a couple people on there with you, and it was just a, you know so inspiring as, as you have been uh, to me by making that transition from the military into Hollywood along this journey. So I feel like I've been I've been uh, you know you've been inspiring me along this path for quite some time since my earliest days in the military, well, and now we know each other. And uh, it's uh, gosh, yeah, I can't wait till we can meet up in, in person and and share a drink and and hang out. So uh, I look looking forward. forward to that. But uh, yeah, where, so where can people find you? They can find you at Tim Abel A B E L L uh, on Instagram yeah. for sure, on uh, on Twitter for sure, and, and where else? Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, yeah, pretty much all the social media. Uh, I don't do some of those. I don't do the I don't do the TikTok and some other things. But yeah. Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, those three, I'm on. Uh, they can find me on there and, um, you know, got some films coming out, some projects coming out. Um, I'm in the mix for, uh, Anton Fuqua's executive producing a Paramount show called the, um, the, uh, uh, oh gosh, what is it called? The mayor of Kingston. Oh, wow. Okay. And I'll say with my, with my, with my, uh, with my Viking haircut. Yeah. Got, um, I'm in the, uh, mix right now over at the network. They're making some decisions, but to play the, the, uh, the white supremacist prison, Lear, who's now oh, out wow. and runs the prison. So it was funny because it was uh, the pandemic. We all would do crazy stuff. I did the haircut here because <laughs> I was, I said, you know what? I've You've had that for a little Viking. while now. You've had that for like I've last year. Viking shows on Netflix. I go, honey, would you just get the clippers out? She goes, why do you want to do that? I go, I don't know because I'm not working right now. And I just, I just want that haircut. And then we <laughs> used it for uh, Fathers and Sons. Yeah. And then you know, my agent goes, I love that haircut. Nice. Anyway, so. But uh, yeah, those are my, those are the platforms that I'm on. And, uh, you know, I'm always, you know, it's one of those things I just, I'm always working and yeah. I love what I do. Yeah. Yeah. If people go to you and check you out there on IMDB, uh, you can scroll through all the things that you've been involved in. And that's quite a list. Like that thing is that it's, you ha you haven't taken much of a break during your 30 years in, no. uh, in LA. You know, you know it's, it's one of those things I, 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 when I first came to LA, I, I was, had that mindset of, uh, you know. I'm going to be a film and TV actor. I'm not going to do commercials. I'm not going to do soap operas. I'm not going to do, you know, all this like small rinky dink stuff. And, you know, as we, as we do this, as I do this, I should say, I, you know, it's like finding little pieces of nuggets of gold because what, what's, I don't know who, who it was a coined the phrase, but it was, you know, a writer writes, a director directs, an actor acts, you know, that's what we do. And if you're a writer, you should always be writing, you know, and as an actor, I go, you know what? I'm not above doing fathers and sons, a short film. I'm not above doing other short films or small projects or a YouTube project. So I've got the place where I go, you know what? These are all just like, they're all like for me being, being in class. They're all, they're all like being 
part of this giant puzzle where I get to learn about myself and create new characters and act. And so I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I'm not the guy who's just going, I'm not going to do those low budget movies. I go, you know what? That'd be fun to do that. I think I'm going to do that. I'm <laughs> That's great. Some money to be some psycho. I'll do that. You know? <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh yeah. man. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I sincerely appreciate it. And, uh, and thank you for, for your inspiration. Thank you for doing fathers and sons. That is absolutely amazing for sure. If you have not seen that, anybody who's listening and watching, check that out. It's uh, just 10 minutes and it's winning all these awards and it is an, an incredible piece of work from, from these guys. So, uh, congratulations on your new book release. Ah, thank you. Thank you so much. One's uh, your one out there in the other room has your name on it and is headed your way <laughs> shortly. So going back in there to print labels and keep packaging up books. So, uh, and, and I love, I love, I love your cutlery on your wall. Oh, there you go. Yeah, this is from the 1800s. This is uh, I love that. the I uh, love that. the golden age of American steel right here. So 1800s, they each come from a different uh, company back then. But this one's a hog splitter, the big one, a cleaver, oh, and yeah. then this little small guy right here. But um, but yeah, I mean that's some that's some tough American steel right there. <laughs> I, I just watched. I just watched you, and I I love that. I love this stuff. But I just watched you. Uh, you were at Black Rifle Coffee, and you had like the rubber heads, <laughs> and you're like. I'm, I love that. I, you know what? It makes me feel like I'm 12 years old again. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty fun. Actually, I'm heading down to, to Texas next week, and I think we're going to blow some stuff up with some uh, Rambo First Blood Part Two exploding arrows. So instead of just those heads, we're going to have the full on, uh, have the full on zombie, uh, you know, torsos. And we're going to see what those arrows do to them. So that should be pretty fun. <laughs> awesome, man. Awesome. Well, Hey, thank you again so much. And hopefully I'll see you in LA or I'll see you out here in Park City soon. I look forward to your brother. Welcome to the gear spotlight section of today's podcast. Where should I start? I think I'm starting with this. This is a Dynamis combat flathead. And if you've seen me in interviews, sometimes I'm twirling something around in my hand. Sometimes it's a pen, but more often than not, it is this. And if you've been paying attention in the last couple novels, the protagonist, Navy SEAL sniper, James Reese, uses this in a couple different scenarios. So this is uh, a pretty cool tool right here. This is almost an, in I say it's an indestructible uh, screwdriver, but this combat flathead, this thing is legit. Absolutely love it. And uh, it is designed by Dom Rasso and made by Daniel Winkler. But you can get this on the Dynamis website. So I love this thing. I have a couple of them and they're always, they always seem to be within reach. All right. Let's see. So I'm very excited about this. So this is a SIG P228. And this is a pistol that we had in the SEAL teams uh, when I got there. So we had the 226, the 228, and the uh, P239. So those were kind of the uh, handguns of choice. The 226 was really the one that was the workhorse. But we had this. This was the one that we had for uh, when we were carrying concealed, particularly if we're, um, well, maybe I'll keep to myself exactly when we would use this. But then the 239 as well. So I uh, just got this. You can tell it still has, they, they don't make it anymore. So uh, I found this and it says certified pre-owned right here, but it came from a SIG and somebody found this for me and uh, and sent this my way. So I'm super excited to, to have this in the collection because I have some great memories with this thing right here. So very cool. I think one of my goals over time will be to collect most of the weapons that, uh, at least the ones I can track down anyway, that have been used in the SEAL teams, probably from Vietnam through today. So uh, that's on my list. Where to next? All right, so we're talking about firearms, gunfighter, gun oil right here. So my friend Mickey Shook, he's carry trainer on Instagram and just an amazing guy. I was on the range with him. It's been a couple of years now and he outshot everybody that was there and we had some pretty, we had some pretty serious people there as well. So uh, he's got this going. So this is what I'm using now on my, uh, my weapons. And uh, yeah, I'll report back on how it does. I've been using it for, for a little while now, but haven't been on the range that much. I've been doing a lot more typing than I've been doing uh, shooting and working out. But uh, yeah, awesome right here. Uh, gunfighter, gun oil. All right. What else? So this, if you were watching my last podcast, uh, or one of the last ones with uh, Fred Burton and Fred Burton right here, author of Beirut Rules right there. But uh, he's a big fan of these guys. See home. See that? Boom, boom, boom. And so this is a very cool watch company. And uh, if it... If, if Fred has good things to say about them, then I'm all in. And I love this. So I opened this up already once to take a look and check that out. I'm not gonna, I'm not sure if you can actually see it, but inside this very cool container is a compass. 
And I love when people get creative with their uh, with their packaging and and all that. So check that out. Really cool, especially if this was a gift for a, a kid or something like that. Very cool. Um, awesome. So love that. And then it comes in this little case right here, and you open this up, and bam, there's the watch. So right there, really cool looking. You can see that right there. But uh, yeah, awesome. So if you haven't listened to the, the podcast with Fred Burton then uh, go check that out. He's an amazing author. I go to his books all the time, particularly this one, Beirut Rules. But uh, uh, all of them are fantastic. And we're going to do a podcast where he comes back and talks about each book individually because um, one, they're that good, they're that informative, and they've been that impactful uh, on me uh, as, as an author and, uh, and a student of history. So uh, these three though, so Samuel Katz, helped uh, was uh, Fred Burton with this one, Beirut Rules. But he also has these standalone here ones. And uh, this is called No Shadows in the Desert. So that one right there, that, uh, that, that has been out for about a year right now. But uh, you can still, still find that. And Samuel Katz, awesome guy. And he did this one too, Relentless Pursuit. If you can find this one, for sure, pick this up. So uh, Fred Burton and Samuel Katz have teamed up on uh, a couple of different projects now. And they are an amazing team. So uh, be sure to check check these out. And what else do I have here? I got these when I was on the range at uh, Terran Tactical. Ooh, look at that. Ninja. Uh, Terran Tactical, a uh, couple, I don't know, last week, actually, when I was uh, out in LA on the set of the Terminal List series that's being filmed right now, starring Chris Pratt. So I stopped by Terran Tactical and did a little, ran through their shooting course there, had a great time. Amazing. And he gave me these these Roka shooting glasses. So right there, bam. So these things were awesome running the course out there. So I'll be checking these out in the months ahead as I hopefully get back on the range and do a little more shooting. So that concludes the gear segment portion of today's podcast. Thank you for joining me on the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. If you like what you heard, or even if you didn't, uh, go ahead, hop over, leave a review, and actually just do it if you liked it. Leave a good review, leave a five-star rating that helps beat those big tech algorithms that might not necessarily uh, like some of the topics that we discuss on this podcast. So go ahead and do that and follow Tim Abel, T-I-M-A-B-E-L-L, on the social channels and stay up to date with what he has going on. You can see that short film, Fathers and Sons, A Terminalist Story, 10 Minutes, on my website, officialjackcar.com. Scroll down to January on the blog and you can get some behind the scenes from that video shoot and check it out in its entirety. It's right there for you. So thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you next time on Danger Close. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy exactly. or right. Right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.